and then we're going to look into Isaiah 8 and 9. Father in heaven, we thank you that you love us, you care for us so much that you sent your son. Second member of the Trinity stepped out of heaven, added flesh to his deity. It became our perfect sacrifice. It's astounding. It's mind-blowing that a God like you would do such a thing for us. We pray this morning that we would marvel and wonder and be in awe once again this morning. May Christmas not be the same after we hear the glories of our Savior today. And may it remind us to hold this time precious. Lord, we thank you for our gathering here. We thank you for each and every one who has come. Family that's in visiting, our, our families that are traveling even now, give them safe journeys. For those who are watching online, I'm so grateful for them, Lord. Please heal them, strengthen them, comfort them, Lord. Father, we thank you for our missionaries around the world. We're so grateful that they have sensed the call from you to go to places that we can't yet go. And so we send our love and our support and our standing with them, Lord. Give them favor in difficult situations around the world right now. May there be conversations with people who are full of fear that they hear the good news of Jesus Christ. And Lord, may we do the same here. Now bless our time in the word, Lord. May we be encouraged and strengthened. May Christmas be extremely special to those who believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. The year of our Lord is 2020, Christmas time. <laughs> Some may say that we live in very, very dark times. And I think you can maybe make a case for that in some ways. Reading online, the suicide rates are skyrocketing, some of the highest rates they've ever seen consistently. It's not hard to see the growing division in our country and in our world. It's not hard to see that most of the media is controlled by a liberal pagan worldview. The world is locked down all around the globe in fear of this pandemic. Divorce rates are skyrocketing. Can you imagine that? Lock two people up together who really don't love each other? Guess what happens? Divorce rates are going through the world. It seems dark. Another stat that is growing that no one seems to want to talk about is debt. Personal debt is going up and national debt is going up. In fact, it's going through the roof. Small businesses are dying Why big businesses are thriving. It's dark, isn't it? The TV and media outlets become the people's only source of truth. That's dangerous. The world is dark and cold spiritually. But brothers and sisters, there was a child born to us. There was a son given to us. What a statement. What hope. He is so great, so mighty, that there is no darkness that can contain this light, our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, the remnant, remnant, those who believe, we look to the word of God even in dark times. Times of unrest, we find peace. Times of hopelessness, we find hope. Times that seem to be growing darker, we see light. Christmas is a great reminder of that. 
especially Christmas 2020. <laughs> oh, I've seen the light and the hope more than I ever have this year. And I have more hope in the Lord Jesus Christ today than I've ever have. And I want to encourage you to see light in dark places. Jesus has come. I want to give you three points today. And the first one is built around mainly the end of Isaiah 7 and, and 8. And I want you to bear with me as I go through this because I want you to understand, you think you live in a dark time? Well, let's drop into Isaiah's day for a little bit and see how dark it is there and the promise of the light to come and how encouraging it is as we see Jesus come. Number one, the darkness of sin cannot stop the light coming. The darkness of sin cannot stop the coming light. Isaiah 8, last week we end it in Isaiah 7. You remember we finished with a great promises found in verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. <laughs> Yahweh himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son and she will call his name Emmanuel. What great hope we see in that. It was such a vivid details as we looked deep into Isaiah 6 and 7 last week and saw that this details of this birth, this promise in the midst of, of all kinds of trouble and war and hopelessness, here comes this promised one. And 750 years after that promise in Isaiah 7, 14, the light came, our Lord Jesus Christ. But the Bible is really real, isn't it? It shows us what man is like. In verses 15 and 16 in that chapter, we saw how difficult it would be. Before this light comes, darkness would seem to spread over the world. Invasions would happen. And, and young boys would grow up looking for just a little bit of curds and honey on the hillsides because everything was destroyed. But like much of the Old Testament prophecies, Isaiah uses a telescope uh, way of telling us what's happening, right? And, and there, maybe binoculars are a better idea. If you look, you can see things close, but you can also see things farther and even farther away. And Isaiah does such a great job at doing this to help us understand this light and how extensive this light is. Listen, we don't want to leave the light of Jesus Christ just to the manger. In fact, let me go a little further. We don't want to leave the light of the Lord Jesus Christ just to the cross, the Bible takes us to the light, to the eternal, forever kingdom of God. That's how precious this text is. And we begin to explore these things. Just to wrap up chapter 7 and give you an idea of the context, because here all of a sudden, after this great prophecy that's given in chapter 7, verse 14, reality drops back in. What's happening in the nation? Verse 17 through 25 describe extremely bad news for Ahaz. King Ahaz had foolishly sold the gold and silver of the temple to try to get the Assyrians to protect them from Syria and the northern tribes of Israel. Well, this all backfired, and his little clever scheme ended up finding him in trouble. And history tells us that the Assyrians not only wiped out the northern tribes, they came down and caused great trouble for them. And many people died even in the southern tribes as well. And eventually they were led into captivity through Babylon. But Ahaz had tried to, tried to work a deal. He didn't trust God. God said, stay still, stay home, rest. I'll take care of this. Put your trust in me, Isaiah was telling Ahaz. 
But instead, he decided to choose human wisdom and human power over the word of God. Ooh, that's a problem, isn't it? We are finite, aren't we? He is infinite. And think about that in your laps right now. Many of you hold a Bible in your lap of the infinite wisdom of God, and yet we will search the finite wisdom of man. And this is exactly what happens to Ahaz. And in the end, the result is sin and death and destruction. And people are walking around the, the hillsides trying to find a curd or, or a little bit of honey because everything else is destroyed. That's what sin does. The wages of sin is death. It is always death. It kills, destroys, and leaves penniless. That's what it does. And so we find that God would even summon. These verses are fascinating. I don't have too much time to camp here, but you'll notice in these verses, the Lord whistles for the flies of Egypt. Well, what does that mean? Well, there he says, not only am I going to send the Assyrians from the north, I'm calling the Egyptians from the south, and I'm going to crush you in between. Isn't that interesting? God would use godless pagan countries to discipline his children. He's right in everything he does. And so instead of trusting God, staying home, finding the protection and solace in the, God, in the God of Israel, instead they're found nothing but livestock trying to graze among thorns and thistles. It's a bleak picture in 17. In chapter 8, here we find the prophecy continues where God assures King Ahaz, listen to this, despite his rejection of God's word, that Judah would not be overthrown. Now, chapter 8 is a marvelous passage when you look at it, step back and look at it in whole. We'll take it apart just a little bit as we try to understand it. But it's a marvelous passage because God is telling Ahaz, despite your rejection of me, despite the condition of the nation, I have a seed in Judah and I will not let it die. That seed is my son. And he's coming through that line. And so God protects this Nation, And he promises in chapter, in chapter 8, 1 through 9, that he will deal with wicked Syria and wicked northern Israel. This is just the pure grace of God. Notice in verse 1, he, he says, look, I want you to write this out on tablets in such a plain way that any person could understand it. The studied, the unstudied, doesn't matter. This is plain Jane. Put it out there, clear as you can be. And here's what they are to say. Swift to the spoil, the prey is coming quickly. That's the idea of the Hebrew word there. It's actually the name of his son we'll see in a minute. Swift to the spoil, the prey is coming soon. See, he's warning and reminding Ahaz, I have this under control. You don't need to hire out. I'm going to take care of this. I'm going to judge their sin. Verse 2, you find two witnesses in it. Uriah and Zechariah. The Bible said in Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 19, that you should have two to three witnesses to verify something. So God says, verify this with them. Record and verify the word of God. And so two men come forward to remind Ahaz, this is God's word, believe it. Verse three refers to Isaiah's wife, most likely it's, it says there, so I approached the prophetess and she conceived and gave birth to a son. And most likely she's a prophetess because she's the, the wife of Isaiah. But, but clearly she does bring forth a great prophecy, doesn't she? Well, that prophecy is this 
young man named Mailer Salala Hashbaz. Call him to dinner a couple times. Well, his name means just that. Swift to the spoil, and the prey is coming soon. Isn't it, is, it, isn't it interesting? Every time Isaiah shows up, he shows up with another kid that means God's coming and he's not happy. <laughs> and here, once again, he does it. The key here is that the verses tell us that this birth of this child's coming, and it gives you a time frame. Verse 4 reminds us that this is going to happen in a few years. It says, look, before he's able to cry out, my mother, my father, Damascus is going down, Samaria is going down, and they'll be carried away to Assyria. And so you think, well, okay, she gets pregnant, there's nine months, the child has to kind of grow, they start talking when, too, maybe they start saying mama, daddy. So there's not a lot of time. And God's saying, Ahaz, you keep trying to manipulate, you keep trying to twist things your way, I'm telling you, before this kid talks, I'm destroying them. Ahaz wouldn't believe the word of God. But God doesn't, I love what God does. He doesn't make his decisions or do what he's doing based on us. That would be really dumb, huh? We change our mind, we, 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 we obey, sometimes we don't obey. He has a plan written in heaven, written before the foundations of the world, and he's going to execute it. Now, verse 5 through 10 here we see these beautiful verses, and they teach us that Judah will be afflicted also, but there will be a remnant there. In both verses 8 and 10, I just want you to notice this, he uses this Emmanuel principle here. Verse 8, he says, then it will, then it will sweep on into Judah, because the, 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 the rain is going to come down through the northern tribes, particularly Zebulun and Naphtali. They're going to crush the northern tribes, but then it's going to sweep down into Judah and it will overflow and pass through. It will reach even the neck and the spread of the ring will, uh, rings, wings will fill the breath of the land. And then he says this, O Emmanuel. Now that's really important. Look at verse 10. Devise a plan, but it will be thwarted. State a proposal, it will not stand, for God is for us. And you say, well, Scott, what does it all mean? Well, what that means is even though Ahaz thought he could protect himself, and even though this dark time is on this land, and particularly on Judah, the, the, where the line of Christ is, God is going to see them through even though they don't deserve it. Now, I find great hope in that. Because Scott did not deserve his salvation, and God saw his plan through in me. Isn't that amazing? And we see that. Now, here it's nationalism here. When we look at ourselves, it's very personal, isn't it? And so God's going to bring them through. And this is referring back to this Emmanuel prophecy. It's going back to this child's going to be born. This is what from the garden when I said there's going to be a seed that's going to come through the woman and he will crush the head of the serpent. And we watch that all the way through the Old Testament, this biblical theology that works its way as Christ is going to come. And even though Judah will see great devastation, there will remain a seed. And listen, brothers and sisters, we've got to praise God for that. Because that's our hope right there. That's, that's Emmanuel with us. Hope has a name. Emmanuel. Thank you, Hayward, for singing that song. What a song. And you see that in this text. Hope has a name. As you move down verses 11 through 15, there's an answer to the question, how can Judah prepare for this invasion? There's, there's an invasion coming. It tells us right that, that they're going to sweep down into Judah. And so here, this, there, there's so, so got to be some kind of answer here. And the answer was by fearing God, not the Assyrians in verse 13. 
It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy. Notice that. See, they had been regarding all kinds of other things as holy, these false gods and all kinds of things. He says, look, it's God who's holy. Regard me, he's telling them. You want to go through a difficult trial? I don't know if you want to. You're going to go through a difficult trial. How do you get through that? Regard God as holy. What does that mean? Well, holy means absent of evil. Perfect. Hold God for who he is. Do not try to change who he is by your circumstances. Do not demand of him things that are not biblical. Believe the Bible. And that's what he's exhorting. Isaiah's exhorting them in, in the rest of the verse, verse 13. And he shall be your fear and he shall be your dread. You want to fear something? Fear God, not man. What can man do to you? I, I don't know how many times I've been with some people who just right close to their deathbed. And, and I could see, you know, it's, I haven't been there, but in the fact that I was going to die, but I could say, look, let's be honest. Maybe the Lord is about ready to take you home. What's the worst thing that can happen to you? And all of a sudden, this grin will come over their face and they go, I'm going to see Jesus. See, fear him. Fear the God who not only can, can kill the body, but can destroy the soul, the Bible says. And see, this is what was that happened. Israel had lost their fear of the God of Israel. They had lost their dread of a holy God who, who's absent of evil and only can dwell in perfect light, right? They'd lost that. And maybe you're struggling today with sin and temptations. Run away from sin. Flee from it. Run to a holy God. There's only problems and destructions that comes when we dabble in sin. Verses 16 through 18, we see the nation is to wait patiently for the Lord. Well, how do you do that? Verse 16, bind up the testimony, seal the law among the disciples. What does that mean? It means believe God's word. Believe God's word. Look, we're headed into new times in America. And if the Christians don't believe God's word, there's going to be a lot of problems. Because we're the only ones toeing the line. Believe God's word. He promises never to desert us, never to leave us. He has a plan. He's laid it down from the foundations of the world. He will not be pushed off that plan. We must trust him. And here, so many years before the birth of Christ, uh, Isaiah is asking Ahaz and the nation, believe the word of God. Look at verse 17. Here's another great promise. And we're the great way to wait on God. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will even look eagerly for him. Have you ever been in a time in your life where you thought, man, where are you, Lord? I, I've been there. Probably be there again. <laughs> where are you, God? I need you now. I, Isaiah tells Ahaz and the nation, I will even look eagerly for him when I don't see him. See, a true Christian will cry out to God and say, I don't know where you're at, but I know you haven't left me. I'm going to keep looking. I'm going to try to confess sin and walk with you, God. Will you help me? Will you give me strength? I don't know how you're going to work this out and how the details are all going to come together, but I'm going to trust you. You know how far the nation was from that truth? Isn't that interesting? Why would Isaiah say that when the nation's just totally abandoned the living God? Because there's a remnant there. God always has a remnant. He had a remnant in Israel. He has a remnant in the United States. People who will not leave the word of God will believe it with gracious and, and, and joyfully and not legalistic, but will hold to the word of God because we know that is our authority. 
And I love this, that it reminds me to do that. Wait on the Lord, even when you can't see him. Verse 18 says, Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. It's as if Isaiah is saying, look at us. Look at our own family and the message that our own family is carrying. Look at these signs and wonders God is doing in Israel through us. Now, now you go, what does that mean? Well, Isaiah shows up with his little, bro- little boy, right, in, in chapter 7, puts his hand on him. And now he has another son. And, and at any moment, Ahaz could have said, off with his head. And Isaiah's saying, look at us, look at our family. Everybody's deserting the faith. Everyone's deserting the God of Israel. And we are standing here alone. We see the signs and wonders that God is doing. Do you see them? Do you see that by the word of the power of Christ, he holds all things in his hands, Hebrews chapter 1? Do you see that? Do you see that presidents and kings and rulers can't do what they want to do? It is all allowed by God. They are placed there by his divine providence. Do you believe that? See, Isaiah did. And he even brought his whole family. And I love this. He brings his boys into this. He brings his wife into this. This is who we are. He was a great testimony. Verses 19 through 20, we begin to see him ask the nation to start doing things. Look at verse 19. He says, when you say to you, consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? If you're in trouble, shouldn't you look to a living God versus dead people? King Saul did this, right? Boy, God didn't forget this either, right? Remember, he covered himself and went and hid uh, and went to a medium, went to a spiritist and asked for, you know, to talk to Samuel. I mean, crazy stuff. God judged him for that. And this is how bad darkness crashes in on people. They'll go talk to dead people and not listen to the living God. You go, that's crazy. Well, it happens all the time. I'm sure someone in Norman, you can find somebody to read your palm. (laughs) Do something dumb like that. There's a living God. He has all things in his control. Search him. He has what we need. Look at verse 20. To the law, to the testimony. (laughs) That's the word of God. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no drawn. What does that mean? Well, run to the word. <laughs> if, they don't, if what they say does not match up with the word of God, don't believe them. Isn't that good counsel for today? Uh, yeah, CNN, sorry. Or whoever else. See, what the Bible's teaching us is, do you have a biblical worldview? I think the problem in Christianity today, brothers and sisters, hear the little bit of rebuke here, is you don't know your Bible And when you know your Bible, you go, "Uh, that's not right. (laughs) That's not right at all. And and of course, we don't want to be legalistic and all of those things, but but you go, I can't steer my family that way. I can't do that or this or believe in that. That's against God's word. Believe the word of God. And Isaiah, this wonderful prophet who's had such a difficult ministry, him and Jeremiah, I mean, you just don't know I want to trade shoes with these guys. They got like nobody showing up for first service. Or second. It's a tough gig. 
And yet he says, look, my family's here. We're trusting in the word of God. We're seeking him even though we can't see him at times. That's where we're going. In nation, you should do the same. In church, we should do the same. Well, nowhere you survive these years to come if you don't seek him. 22, 21 and 22, I just want to finish this because this is that understanding, this darkness that's on the earth here. They will pass through the land hard-pressed and famished, and it will turn out that they that when they are hungry, they will be enraged. Now listen to this, and curse their king and their God as they face upward. You can see that, right? Looking up, shaking your fist, right? People don't, you don't think people do that? We've probably all done it one time. Verse 22, then they will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be driven away into darkness. That's bleak, isn't it? (laughs) That's darkness. Look, this prophecy was not only for the nation of Israel in the day of Isaiah, but this was the condition of the nation when Jesus showed up in Bethlehem. Do you understand that? Do you understand how dark it was? No one was looking for the Messiah. God sent angels to go tell peasant shepherds who were were the scum of society and weren't even allowed to, to... to appear in court and give testimony because they were so low on the totem pole, God sends angels to tell them of the coming light. It was dark. It was dark. I needed this lesson this week because sometimes I look at our world and I go, God, it ain't getting better. It's getting rough out there. It ain't gonna get, it's gonna get rough in here for us believers. But then the Lord reminds me, look, the true light cannot be snuffed out by darkness. And I'll tell you, it must have been down to a faint faint flicker. (laughs) But it wasn't snuffed out because Jesus came. Look at my second thought here. Number two, a glorious light and one coming that surpasses all comprehension. A glorious light and one coming that surpasses all comprehension. Comprehension. Well, the gloom that is the result of chapter 7 is, is now going to be turned. The corner is going to be made here. And I, and I want you to think about this. This invasion of the Assyrians was terrible on the Jewish people. I mean, it was terrible. When you go back and study this history, it was the northern regions, particularly Zebulun and Naphtali, these two, these two, uh, these two tribes, they are creamed. I mean, that Assyrian... Uh, war machine comes in and levels the place. These guys, there's not much left of them. And here, we see this sweet promise of God. Look at verse 9. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and Naphtali with contempt. But later on, now listen to this, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee, of the Gentiles. Well, the northern tribes suffered the greatest invasion, but guess where Jesus has his ministry? Look with me at Matthew chapter 4. Put your finger there. Turn to Matthew chapter 4 with me. You got to see this. You want to talk about hope in dark times? Your family members 750 years ago were absolutely destroyed by the Assyrians, and guess where Jesus shows up? Same place. Look at Matthew chapter 4, verse 12. But when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. There's a hint. And leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, hmm, 
which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet that the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the, of the Gentiles, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. And those who were sitting in the land in the shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. And from that time on, Jesus began preaching, saying, repent, the kingdom of God is near. Now, isn't that fascinating? You think, I mean, I thought about these guys in Isaiah 8. You think it's bad there? Wait till you got to Jesus' time. You've not only been through the Assyrians, you've been through Babylonians, you've been through the Mede-Persians, then the Greeks came and they just destroyed you and burnt pig offerings on your altar, and then the Romans came and now they have, now they've conquered you. It's dark. <laughs> Makes communism look like a beach day. This is tough, folks. This is tough. And yet, here's this great promise of God. And Isaiah, listen, Isaiah foresees this. Isaiah, by the mercy of God, the Spirit of God, he sees this. And he prophesies that in later times, centuries later, God would come. And he would come as Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, to this area. And surely no prophecy could be more striking in its fulfillment than the appearance of Jesus in this ministry here. You don't, if you're here and you go, I don't know if I believe the Bible, how can that happen? It's so close of detail, 750 years later, perfectly fulfilled by the ministry of Jesus Christ. It's amazing. It gives you hope in the Word of God, doesn't it? Put your faith in the Word of God. Now, look at verse 2 with me. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. Now, most of the Lord's ministry is spent in Galilee. When you study, he only goes to Jerusalem a couple times. He doesn't leave the region very often. He's always in the Galilee area, which would take up the majority of Zebulun and Naphtali. Now, here's where Jesus did most of his ministry. Think about this. You want to talk about dark? You got people. The average lifespan of a male in Jesus' day was 42. You died of all kinds of problems. I mean, there wasn't penicillin. There, I mean, not... You I mean, Jesus changed the lifespan of people. Think about some of the things he did. I jotted a few in my notes. Jesus healed the sick. In fact, that seems this a little bit trite the way I wrote that. The Bible actually says this. He healed all who came to him that day. I circled the word all. I wonder how many of that is. You think your clinic's good. I mean, think about this. He opens the eyes of the blind. They haven't seen from birth. Disciples are going, well, who sinned? This man or his parents? Nobody. This is for the glory of God. This is what he's doing in this area. He forgives sins. Oh, well, who can forgive sins but God? That's right. I forgave his sins. He just proven himself all the way through this, this region that was so hit so hard in darkness. He cast out demons. He has the authority over the demonic world. He raises from the dead. It's here where he preaches his great messages. The Sermon of the Mount, as he looked over the Sea of Galilee, was right here where destruction hit the most. The, probably the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher ever, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. Read it. Jesus did it in this area. He preached that he was the bread of life just after he fed 5,000 with bread. I'm the bread of life. Yeah, well, Moses gave us bread from heaven. God gave you bread from heaven, and he sent me. I'm the bread of life. If you don't eat me, you're going to die. Well, we're gonna, they just all left him after that. Great messages. How about parables? The parable of the sower. This is where he preached the parable of the sower. You know, think about darkness. The land's been just destroyed by war after war and years. And he starts talking about sowing seeds. 
And most of them fall on rocks and roads and thorny grounds and so on. They're all choked out and birds steal them and all of that. But some, some, the remnant, the seed falls in good soil. He's talking about this in a dark, dark place. Because Christ can pierce the light. How about the prodigal son? Anybody a prodigal son in here? Do we not love that? It should be called the faithful father, right? Prodigal son, he's just doing what his flesh says. Well, we're going this way. We want our money and we want a party. Off he goes. Guess who's waiting for him? Not only guess who's waiting, guess who runs to him? The faithful father. See, this message of light is in this dark place. And the Bible's promising Jesus is coming. We can put our faith. It is the great light. It is indeed the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, look at verses 3 and 4. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest. As men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of the oppressor as at the battle of Midian. You go, well, Scott, what does that mean? Now, remember I talked about the binoculars, right? You know, I can go down here and I can see George. And then I can work my way back and see Jeff. And then I can go up and see Troy. Right? Well, this is what's happening here. This is a beautiful thing. The Bible is showing us all kinds of fulfillments. See, we, that's what I said earlier. We love Christmas. Well, we love the cross, and we love the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Bible's teaching us all of these things. And so somewhere between verses 2 and 3, now Isaiah brings in what we call a great parenthesis. There's a parenthesis here. This is, this is where God is going to say, not only is this light coming to this dark place, Naphtali and Zebulun, but it's coming to the world. He's going to break all the oppression. There's a ruler coming that's going to change everything. And he ain't going to get four years in the office. <laughs> he's getting forever. And he's starting to tell you this, isn't he? And so here Isaiah's prophecy leaps over centuries and even go, goes past our own day to a day when the nation of Israel will look back and say, that was the Messiah. The remnant of Israel will. Now, I've had the privilege through the years to see a few Jews come to know the Lord. Um, one particularly, one was a precious man. His name was Daniel, lived in the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, when he came to know the Lord Jesus Christ, this is exactly what he said. He turned to his wife and said, we miss the Messiah. See, he had all this, he understood the Old Testament. He had studied the Old Testament. He knew the, who the Messiah was going to do and where he was going to go and what it was going to happen. But they cram in together the first advent with the second advent. And so what happens is the Jews miss him and a lot of other people because guess what they want? They want a Jesus born who can give them everything they want. Prosperity gospel is running on that same line. Be careful of it. But here's the problem. Here's what happened. When you miss that you need a savior, you combine prophecies. So Jesus did not come and stamp out the Romans and set up kingdom and put people on their right and their left and do everything and give them everything they wanted so he must not be the Messiah. Because they shoved them together. And they shoved them together because they didn't need a savior. They didn't see themselves as a sinner. And friend... You will reject Jesus too if you do not need a savior. If you don't see the gravity of your sin, if you don't see the nature of sin, that its goal is death and destruction and separation, see how ugly, ugly sin is and beg God to save you. 
oh, you may skip right over to. And Jesus is just, well, maybe if this works out, I better believe in this. See, that's what Isaiah's warning them in a way. He's saying, look, this light's coming and he's going to restore and he's going to be in this land of Zebulun and Naphtali and he's going to do amazing things there. But you know, that's not where it ends. There's something so great coming. He's going to take on the oppressors. He's going to take on slavery. He's going to do all kinds of things. And notice that it says right at the end of four, uh, four, the rod of their oppressor as the battle of Midian. Well, who's that? Who was in Midian? Gideon, thank you. What happened at Gideon? Well, God, we got all these thousands of guys. Let's go take on Midianites. Ah, uh, yeah, that's too many. <laughs> let's, let's get rid of the ones that are scared. <laughs> Remember that? All of them go home, a bunch go home. Ah, let's take them down. Let's get a little drink of water and see who laughs and see who brings the water up to their face. Well, now we're down to 300 guys against hundreds of thousands of big guys. All right, that's a fair fight with God. Let's go up there. Let's surround, let's surround this Midianite camp. And guess what? You guys are going to do anything but blow on horns and broke, break your mom's dishes. That's it. I'm going to take care of the rest. They blow the horns, break the vase or the, the vase or whatever it was. And, and what happens? They turn on each other and slaughter one another. And God brings this back into this text because when you study Zechariah and some of the minor prophets when it gets to this time in the future, he will turn them against each other the exact same way. Isn't that fascinating? 750 years before Christ's birth, it's laid out perfectly. Read your Bible. (laughs) Believe your Bible. Now, so much fun stuff here. Got to move. Six and seven. Now, oh, actually five. We've got to look at five real quick. Every boot of the booted warrior in the battle of Tormont, the coat rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. Now, this is a, this is a somewhat gruesome but beautiful uh, depiction of worldwide peace here. The tools of warfare will be destroyed. They're going to use them for kindling because now the Prince of Peace is on the earth and no more is there need for that. So the F-34... 33 or whatever there is now. We don't need him. The prince is here. And he's going to take care of sin. Now let's get to 6 and 7. Here we go. Christmas time. For a child will be born to us and a son will be given to us. A child will be born to us and a son will be given to us. What a remarkable picture here that God has given. For a child will be born to us and a son will be given to us. So he who is from eternity past, think about this, the son of God, part of the part of the Godhead, the second member of the Godhead, he is going to be given to all those who believe. Now that's a particularly very important verb in there, isn't it? You don't select him, he's actually given to you. It's a gift. It's a gift. This is Christmas, isn't it? Right? We talk about gifts all the time. Well, here's this gift. He will be given to you. So here's this little baby in Bethlehem born of the line of David to a nation that is in darkness and in slavery. And here comes the savior of the world. He's the son that is given to this nation and not only to the nation of Israel, but to all those who believe in him. It is a gift from God. And we need this perfect, infinite gift, don't we? We're so fallible, aren't we? We're so finite. We need this perfect gift. It'll, it'll be like a perfect atonement for Scott's sins, past, present, and future. What do you want for Christmas? How about your sins forgiven? <laughs> Think about it. We write songs like just my two front teeth. You go to hell with no teeth. 
We need the gospel. This is the son given to us. It is a gift. God, God looked at us in our darkness, in our damnation, and where we're at and said, I'm sending my own son. That is absolutely mind-blowing. This is why Paul used the word this morning, because I use it on Wednesday, I preach a sermon on this. Incarnational joy. Are you experiencing incarnational joy? I made it up, you won't find it in the dictionary. Incarnational joy this year? When you, incarnational joy is when you realize again afresh that Jesus stepped out of heaven, assumed flesh because he's God, he had to represent us, steps out of heaven so that he could rescue Scott, he could rescue you from eternal damnation. And you go, I'm overwhelmed by that. That's incarnational joy. Do you got it? Do you have incarnational joy? Because all other joys will fail away. And that's what this is about. He gave us a son. A son must be given. But notice there's also a child must be born. I think this is fascinating. If Jesus does not take on flesh, he ain't going to die. Isn't that right? You ever try to kill God? Not easy. <laughs> God is spirit, the Bible says, John 4, 24. So he takes on flesh, now listen to this, so he can die for you. So a child must be born. He must come in an a, a, a incredible, miraculous conception by the Holy Spirit. Um, Luke chapter 1, verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon Mary. She goes, how can this be? I love that term. It will come upon her, and the holy child will be in her, this holy, absent from sin, because Joseph didn't have a role in it. He's set apart from the depravity of man. This, but this child must be born, must be born under the law, born of a woman, in order to adopt us. So Jesus becomes our representative. Jesus is your representative. When he hangs on the cross, when he's born in that manger, and when he stands in front of God interceding for us, he represents us because he was born of a man. Don't let anybody, anybody rob you from the deity or the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every religion in the world denies his deity. We hang on to his humanity as much as we hang on to his deity because he's our brother now. He's the one who represents us. He's one of us, but without sin. <laughs> oh, see how glorious this is. This is Christmas, that baby in the manger. That's the God-man come to rescue you. Do you look at Christmas that way? I urge you to strive for that. Look at six, next section there. And the government will rest upon his shoulders. Well, he has to be given. He has to be from the Son of God. He has to be, share the, the deity and glory of the triune God. And he has to be gifted to us in humanity so that the government can rest on his soldiers, shoulder. And all of the universe will rest on him. Well, who can do that? I mean, we got guys who can't take care of the United States, let alone the rest of the world and the universe. Hebrews says he holds all things up by the power of his word. Isn't that, that's who's coming. That's the babe in the manger, one who can, all of the governments, all of humanity, all of life can rest upon him. And now look, verse, C, uh, verse six, just the third part there. There's four titles that are given here and they almost don't need explanation, but I can't help myself, so you gotta listen. Wonderful counselor. Has anyone ever fulfilled the title more fully than Jesus. He unveils the secrets of your heart that nobody else knows. 
As counselors, if you come to my office, we're biblical counselors. We're going to go to the Word, and our goal is to help you see sin that lies within your heart, that's troubling your marriage, troubling your relationships, whatever it is, these idols that lay We're going to do our best, but you know what? We're dependent upon the Word of God and the Spirit of God in your brokenness to, to see that sin. But not our Savior. He gets right to the heart of the matter. He, he can go and deal with heartaches and problems. He can see what's causing the sin in your life. And he graciously shows himself, the counselor, as the deliverer. That's astounding. I can take you to Jesus, but I can't deliver you. He's the wonderful counselor. He's the one full of glory and grace. And every true born-again believer constantly marvels when you come to the Lord and you fall before his face and you see your sin and realize that he's forgiven you. When's the last time you went before the Lord and just said, I want to just thank you today because you forgave me of my sins? That's that sweetness that we have with the Lord. Look, he sits in equality with the counsel of the Godhead, and then he tells us how to live our lives through the word. Do you, you think the Senate or you know, some presidential council could do any better? He sits in equality with the Godhead. When I tell you, you come to my office, I say, you know what I want you to do? I want you to read the book of John. I don't send you there because, well, that'll take them a few weeks and I won't have to deal with them. I send you there because that's where the wonderful counselor is. That's where you see him. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we behold this uh, grace and truth, right? Full of grace and truth. We behold his glory, full of grace and truth. I want you to behold his glory. That's the only thing that's going to change your marriage, change your life, change your finances, change everything, is when you behold the glory of Christ. He is a wonderful counselor. Run to him. Our jobs as pastors would be easier if we would all, including myself, run to the wonderful counselor. And you may need help. Look, you may need help. But come with an open heart saying, show me the counselor. Mighty God is the next statement. Wow, unquestionably divine title. <laughs> just an unquestionably divine title. If you don't believe me, chapter 10, verse 21, you can just turn over a page. A page. The same Hebrew word is used speaking of the Father. But here it's speaking of the Son. So they share this mighty God title, don't they? And this verse tells us that the Messiah is mighty God. The God of all creation and glory. The Lord who reigns in heaven. The one worthy of all worship and praise. Can there be any more straightforward declaration of the deity of Christ than this? Mighty God. And yet all the religions of the world, well, he was a good man. He was sent by God in some way, but he's not God. And they all rejected. Eternal Father, my time is fleeting, so I have to hurry. Eternal Father, well, this is the Messiah. This says the Messiah is the Eternal Father. The idea in the Hebrew word here is that Jesus is the source and author of eternity. Oh, get your mind around that for a minute. He authored eternity. I don't know. It's mind-blowing, isn't it? He's the father of it. He holds it all control. He's the creator. He does not, it does not mean that Jesus himself is the person of the Father, but it's a reference to the fact that Jesus alone can give eternal life. He is the father of eternity. It originated with him. 
in him was life. <laughs> and life was the light of men. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right power, life, to become the children of God, even to those who believe in his name. So the phrase eternal father can be translated father of eternity. He's a father of eternity. That's who our Lord is. It has the idea of a continual, always holding it together. So the one who existed always has come to earth to be your savior, prince of peace. I just love that phrase. In a world where there's no peace, think about this. The Messiah is the prince of peace. He, is, he alone is the one who is able to bring peace between you and God. The Bible is very clear that before you're saved, you're at war with God. Ephesians chapter 2, read it yourself. You go, well, God, that's a little rough on my guest sitting here. <laughs> Sorry. Um, sin has made us at war with God. Sin has put us in opposite camps. We fight against God. You go, well, I don't. I promise you, you do. When we start working through the Bible, you start going, yeah, I don't agree with that. I don't agree with that. We're at war with God. Tell the Lord Jesus Christ comes and unveils himself to you, shows you who he is, shows you that he's the Messiah, shows you that he lived a perfect life, shows you that he is the only way to the Father. There is no other way. There is no other truth. There's no other life. No one can get to the Father except through him. And you put your faith in him by God's sovereign grace and you start to see him as the Prince of Peace. And that reference is not only for the time when he came or our salvation, that's coming for the future. And guess what this old world will be at one day? At peace. Because the prince will be ruling. And we find, we find great hope in that. But for us, we've been justified by faith and we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. John 14, 27, one of our favorite verses of many of men in here that we've sat down and worked through this verse together. Peace I leave with you, Jesus says. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives. The world can't give you peace. He gave us peace. Isn't that sweet? You can lay your head down tonight and say, I am not at war with God. God loves me. A lot of people, oh, God loves you. Ooh, be careful saying that. Because <laughs> it only says that he has peace with those who believe in him. So, yes, God does generally love his creation, but he has a unique love for his believers. And he proves it because he gives them peace. They're not angst. They're not full of sorrow over, man, am I going to make it? Do I, did I do enough? Maybe I better put a few more good works on the scale. No, we rest in Jesus Christ and then we live for him. That's what the peace, Prince of Peace, does for us. Well, one final thought, because I'm just going to get into the finish line here. Third, the birth of the eternal God the light of the world. Maybe there's someone in here that says, Scott, how do we know that this is the Jesus of the New Testament? Man, I was hoping you would ask that. Look with me at Roman, excuse me, Luke chapter 1. Actually, Matthew chapter 1. We've got to do this quick, so hurry. Matthew chapter 1. Joseph has fallen off into sleep. He's very disturbed. He's found out that his his betrothed spouse, Mary, is pregnant, and it's not him. He's overwhelmed. He's considering these things in verse 20, and he seems to drift off because an angel appears to him in a dream. It says, Joseph, son of David, you're on the right line, that's good. Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Don't fear the world. This is going to be bad. The family's not going to understand it. You're going to go to Bethlehem, and no one's going to put you up because you got a pregnant wife out of wedlock, and you're going to probably have birth in a stable. 
<laughs> that's my account. <laughs> Look at this. For the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Whoa, wait a minute. That's supernatural. The Godhead is at work within your womb. <laughs> this is something unique. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will, whoa, save his people. Who can save somebody? This has to be God. See, this is Isaiah. This is Isaiah, the mighty God, right? This is coming through the womb of Mary. And this is to fulfill the prophets spoken. And then he's right back, verse 22, to Isaiah 7 and Isaiah 9. Behold, there be a virgin with a child, and she shall bear a son, and, they, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, because God's with us. God is with us. There's no way you can get around that this child is not God, just by his name alone. Go to Luke chapter 1. Hope you're, somebody's going to read the Christmas story in your family this year. Luke 1, verse 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He, told, he already told Joseph that he's going to save, he's going to save people. He will be great. Okay, here's some titles. Well, maybe, you know, someone could be great. And he will be called the son of the most high. Well, that eliminated everybody else right there. You know, could have been talking about a great athlete or a great singer, but that eliminated everyone. This is coming from the most high. That was such a sacred phrase of the Jews. This is his son. And the Lord will give him the throne of his father, David. That's the Davidic covenant. And he will reign over the house of Jacob for a little while. Is anybody awake still? I know it's late and lunch is coming. How long? Forever. Well, wait a minute. That's exactly what Isaiah said. This is a forever king. This isn't a guy who's going to die off and then his son's going to take over and he's going to die and then his son's going to take over and he's going to die and die, 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 die. This one lives forever. Revelations, he says, I was the one who was dead, but now I'm alive forever. Look with me farther. His kingdom will have no end. We just read about that in Isaiah. Mary said, this is so sweet. How can this be? I know. I, I understand. I'm only probably very young, but I understand this whole process. Parents, you can explain that later. Verse 35. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. This is what the angel says. The power of the Most High, there it is again, will overshadow you. And for this reason, all right, here's another separation. The child's holy. The child is absent of evil. Absent of sin. Eliminate everyone but Jesus. See how this ties in together? Luke 2, the angels show up to the, to the nobody shepherds. Kind of like them. Maybe they were more cowboys. This is a sign to you. You will find this babe, this holy one, in claws, lying in a manger. And of course, all of a sudden, all these angels show up and glory to God in the highest and, and on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. There's that peace. There's that glory. That's all what Isaiah was talking about. You can't find anyone else who figures this out. Who, who is this person? And so today, so many people wait for the Messiah. He's here. And he's dispersed the gloom. And he is for all of us. Genesis chapter 12, 3, hitchhiking on the promise in the garden, God tells Abraham, there's a seed coming, and through your seed, he will be a blessing to all, all generations and all nations. 
it has always been his goal to not only rescue a remnant of his people, but rescue a remnant of Gentiles and make us all his people under his perfect rule someday. Hey, this is the hope that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Hey, what kind of Christmas are you going to have? You're going to have incarnational joy this, this week? Kids, are you worrying about what you're going to get? I hope you get nice stuff. I really do. It's fun. It's a great thing we do for one another. But don't miss Jesus. Dads, heads of homes, might be a mom in here if it's a head of a home if you don't have a husband. Who's reading that story this year? Who's reminding the family of incarnational joy? Figure that out. Christmas is coming. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together. We rejoice in this passage. It is mind-boggling as we think about Isaiah. 750 years before Christ, he is described perfectly as the Son of God, equal to the whole Trinity, standing in glory. God, you say you would not share your glory with another, and yet here's your Son. You must be equal. There is no other way around it. And yet, this time of year lands us in a manger scene in Bethlehem, staring in the eyes of an infant that is a mighty God, a wonderful counselor, eternal father, the prince of peace. Living a life under, under the law, born of a woman, living in this dark, dark, sinful world, but lived it perfectly so he could represent us for all time. He's our high priest, he's our savior, he's our peacemaker. He is everything we need. And for us, Lord, it started in that manger. For you, Lord, you planned it from the foundations of the world. But for us, we see him in the manger. And Lord, we, we, like those kings, would love to show up and bend our knee. And that's what we're doing here today, Lord. As we preach and sing, we bend our knee before the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Ruler and reigner of all things and all things to come. Our hope is in you, Jesus. In his name, amen. Will you stand with me and let me read you a closing benediction and then we'll be dismissed. Listen to this. Just some thoughts I pinned down. Dear, wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace, may you cause your light to shine upon us and may the glory and wonder of who you are cause us to be filled with incarnational joy. May we remember the immeasurable power that you have and how you are ready to aid us in weakness. May we seek your wonderful counsel through the truth of your word. May we lean on the Father of eternity for comfort during times of stress and temptation and cause this Christmas us to marvel that God is with us. God is Emmanuel. Amen?